We've been talking for the past several weeks about the counterfeit gods in our lives, and some of those counterfeit gods are pretty obvious to point out. We can see uh, how dangerous they are in our lives or in the culture that we find ourselves in, and we understand our, our need to be aware of them, our need to avoid them. But there are other counterfeit gods, other influences that are, are more subtle in nature. And these are the kinds of influences that, that really we may not even be aware of. We may not be aware of the ways in which we're beholden to some of these elements of our culture. But, but even though these, these influences have more of a subconscious feel to them, uh, they wreak havoc in our lives nonetheless. And in fact, you could argue that these are the counterfeit gods that we should be most on guard against. I'll show you a picture here as we get started. Um, this is my high school class ring. I told the first service, I don't even know if we still do class rings anymore. Is that like a thing? Do we still do class rings? Okay, we do. Um, that, the, the whole point of, uh, of a class ring, apparently, is to, to find someone to give it to. Um, I've, I've very rare, I haven't worn this ring in years, and, and honestly, I've hardly ever worn it because I got it, and then a couple weeks later, I found a girl who would actually wear it, and that somehow signified that she was like my girlfriend. And then when she broke up with me, she was gracious enough to give it back, and then I had it in my possession for a little while longer, and then, then I met Sunny, and I gave it to her, and she's had it ever since. So we had to like go digging through all of her things to, uh, to find it over the course of the weekend, uh, because she doesn't wear it very much anymore either, all right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, wish, I wish this was the only thing that I thought of when I looked at this class ring. When I, when I look at this, this ring, I'm, I'm reminded of, of something else I want to share with you. I'm reminded of the, the counterfeit God of racism that permeated the culture of my hometown in the Deep South. Uh, when I picked the design for my ring, I chose to have two Confederate flags set beneath the stone there. I don't know if you can see them in that picture or not. You can come up afterward and I'll show you. And they're, they're right there, two Confederate flags. And when people would ask me why I, I would have two Confederate flags on my, my high school class ring, I, I said it was because I was proud of my heritage. I said it was because I was proud of my heritage as, as a Southerner, who I was as a, as a Southern boy. And it, it was probably years later before I could admit the full truth to myself that that those flags also reminded me to be proud of who I wasn't. And uh, I am really ashamed to tell you what I'm about to tell you. But when I look at this ring now, I am reminded of an African-American boy in my class by the name of Gary. Gary was fairly new to our school, our Christian school, by the way. Uh, he was new to our school because his father had just agreed to be our custodian. And on Gary's first day of school, I called him a racial slur. Like, to his face, I said that. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I didn't even believe in that kind of language. That's the funny part. My parents didn't talk that way. In fact, they, they raised us to, to treat everyone with dignity and respect, no matter their skin color. So I, I knew all of that, and, and more importantly than that, I believed that. 
but not on the day I met Gary. Now, on, on that day, I forfeited all of that for the little bit of social standing that I could curry by insulting him. That first day of school was a Wednesday. That night, Gary and his family showed up at our church. Uh, he and I sat in the youth group class where, where I was considered a leader. I was on like the leadership council for youth group, which meant I would lead prayers and lead songs on Wednesday nights. And I just tried to pretend like I didn't see Gary sitting right there. Now, why in the world do I tell you this ugly story? Well, I promise you I don't tell it to you because I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, believe me, I, I'm deeply ashamed of, of this. and It's just the kind of thing I just assume cover up, especially with you. But, but I tell you the story to let you know that this conversation about counterfeit gods requires us to be honest with parts of our lives that we just as soon cover up, that we just as soon ignore or, or pretend as if they weren't there. And if we're, we're going to really have a conversation about the counterfeit gods in our culture, we have to be honest about some of those places in our hearts. And if we're going to do that, then I'll go first. I'll go first. Racism was a, a deeply embedded cultural idol, a counterfeit God in the place where I grew up in Middle Tennessee. And I only just pray that somebody came along after me to show Gary that every Christian isn't that way. See, some of our counterfeit gods are so deeply embedded in our culture that we don't even we don't even realize how much we're beholden to them. And, and I learned that from looking back over my, my experience. I, I think of that when I look at, at a ring like this. And, and, and even more importantly than, than this little narrative, that's the lesson I think we're, we're meant to learn from the biblical book of Jonah. Now, if you've ever been to a vacation Bible school in your life, you know at least part of the story of Jonah, right? But it's, it's not just a story for, for kids. In fact, it's a grown-up story. Because the message of Jonah is a message about the counterfeit gods that permeate our culture, the ones we perhaps need to be on guard against the most. Jonah begins with this word, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the word told Jonah to do this, to go to that great city of Nineveh and to preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And, and this is the part of the story that's fairly familiar. You know, Jonah rejects this word from God. He, he doesn't want to go. And so what he does is he boards a ship headed to the, the opposite direction. But if you, if you just do like a, a deep dive on Jonah's story, you come across this, this scene in 2 Kings chapter 14 where, where the writer there tells us that Jonah is in kind of an advisory capacity to King Jeroboam of Israel. And one of the things it says there in 2 Kings 14 is that Jonah actually advises Jeroboam to expand the borders of Israel, to go out and to, to restore the borders. He's, he's an expansionist. You know, he wants what's best for Israel. And what's unique is that Jonah, among the prophets, is one who doesn't seem to be overly concerned about the sin of Israel's leader. 
You know, all of his prophetic contemporaries, they're the ones kind of preaching against the monarchy and the sins that are coming out of Jerusalem. But, but Jonah doesn't seem to have that, that whole thing going on. He seems willing to overlook maybe some of the, the king's shortcomings in order to, to increase Israel's influence nationally. And so the call for Jonah to go and to preach to a, to a pagan people, to a foreign people, to a people like Nineveh, to the, the Assyrians, that would have been would have been striking for him. This man who in the pages of Scripture appears to just to, to, be, to be really devoted to his own people. Nineveh was the most powerful city in the world at the time. It was the seat of the Assyrian Empire. It was home to uh, 120,000 people. That's the number we find there at the end of, of Jonah. And as Timothy Keller notes, he says this, that God was reaching out in mercy by sending Jonah. He was reaching out in mercy to the great enemy of his people, and no more counterintuitive mission could have been imagined. But then God was sending a patriotic Jewish prophet to do this, so no more unlikely emissary could have been chosen. And God was asking Jonah to do what must have been considered unconscionable for him. But I love this line. He says, but that was the mission... And he was the missionary. So this first part of Jonah, again, we said it's well known. It's, it's when he goes from the depths to the heights. He, he boards that ship bound for Tarshish. God sends this violent storm. Jonah is thrown overboard. And then we all know this is where the great fish makes his appearance. And it is from the depths of that, that imagine, unimaginable kind of place that Jonah offers up this, this prayer, this prayer for mercy that, it, that takes up the entirety of Jonah chapter 2. And, and there in that text, he says something that really could be the undergirding thought for this entire series. He says, those who cling to worthless idols actually forfeit the grace that could be theirs. This is the cry of Jonah from the belly of the beast. And so God, in his infinite mercy, he hears Jonah's cry, and he responds, but listen to what it says. It says that God commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah cries for mercy. God responds, but sometimes God's grace, I guess, looks like this. It looks like a prophet covered in fish vomit. But Jonah has an opportunity to respond again to the word because God says, all right, let's try this again. And this is where the second half of Jonah is, is less familiar to many of us, but it's no less powerful. God says, go proclaim the message again to Nineveh, and this time Jonah is obedient. And so he goes and he proclaims this word, and he proclaims the word of God to a people who, who are just different. He proclaims the word of God to a people who look differently than he does. People have a different skin color. People who have a different language, a different accent. They worship different gods. But Jonah is faithful and he goes and he proclaims the word. And this is what it says in Jonah 3 verse 4. It says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That is, is the entirety of what the Bible says about the preaching of Jonah. That he comes along and he proclaims this message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That word overturned, Hebrew scholars say, it is the same word that you find over in Genesis chapter 19 to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I can almost picture Jonah with all of his nationalistic kind of fervor walking the streets of Nineveh. He doesn't want these people to be saved, clearly, by the way he acts at the end of the story. And he walks through and his message is, 40 more days, 
And this place is going to be overturned. Clock's ticking, 39 more days, Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. It's about to happen, and man, is it going to be a show. This is the message that Jonah comes and proclaims to these people, that God has a special kind of punishment reserved for all of y'all. But amazingly, amazingly, the people repent. The people turn from their wickedness, They believe Jonah, and more importantly, as it says in the very next verse, the people of Nineveh believed God. In fact, you go on to read there what it says. It says that the king uh, declares this, this decree. He issues a decree that every living thing, both human and animal alike, must not eat or drink, but should be covered with sackcloth and to call upon the Lord. And God had compassion on the people, and he did not bring about the destruction that he had threatened. So Jonah preaches, and it says everyone responds, and God relents, and this should be the end of Jonah. Jonah should be elated, right? I mean, by this metric, he is the most successful preacher of all time. He has a conversion rate of 100%. Everyone responds. 120,000 individuals have been delivered from destruction, according to the word here. But not only that, did you catch it? It says that even the animals are running around wearing sackcloth to demonstrate the, the repentance that has just gripped this nation. All right? So as, as a preacher, I just have to say, when you offer the invitation and you have livestock walking down the aisle to respond, that's a career highlight, okay? That doesn't happen very often. So Jonah should be on cloud nine. He should be thrilled. But instead, instead Jonah pouts. Jonah is upset. Jonah has the gall to say this to God in Jonah chapter four, verse two. I knew that you are gracious and a a compassionate God, that you are slow to anger and you're abounding in love and you're a God who relents from sending calamity. Note the irony. Jonah, the guy has dried fish vomit in his beard and he is upset that God would be merciful to 120,000 people. How does that happen? How is it that he sits out here in the desert? He basically is saying I, he camps out outside the city walls and, he, and he, wants, he wants to die. The only explanation I can come up with is, is that Jonah is just gripped with hatred. It's the only thing that makes any sense to me is that, that Jonah has built a wall in his heart and he has this, this clean division of, of us and them, and, and it's Israel and everybody else. And so, so he doesn't want God to be gracious and compassionate to anybody else. He wants that blessing to just be reserved for him and for his people. And so then when, when God actually restores and delivers 120,000 people from the judgment that was going to be theirs, and on top of that, it says that they placed faith, they trusted, they believed in Israel's God. Jonah can't rejoice over that, but instead he pouts. Because it's not the show he expected. 
He wanted Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. He wanted the fireworks. Instead, what he got was a demonstration of the compassion of God. Aren't you thankful? I mean, we should be. Because you and I, for Jonah, we are them. Right? For Jonah, in Jonah's eyes, if it's us and them, and the us is Israel, and the them is everybody else, then, then you and I are Ninevites. You and I are them. <laughs> Thankfully, God sees things a little differently. Thankfully, God's compassion cuts through Jonah's categories of us and them, because our God is not a God of us and them. With our God, it is only and always us. That's what God is working toward. He wants to cut through those categories and through the blood of Jesus and the the reconciliation that is brought about through the, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus that we've just remembered. God is seeking to reconcile all things to himself in Christ. And so Jonah is sitting and he's pouting, and, and, and God, God decides to teach Jonah a lesson, and in order to do that, he causes this vine to grow up over Jonah. And this is probably the, the portion of the story where, where we're least familiar, but, but there's this, this vine grows over Jonah. He, again, he's, he's basically just plopped down out in the desert where he can see the city, and I guess he was wanting to see all the, the fire and the sulfur rain down on Nineveh like it did Sodom and Gomorrah, but instead he's just there and he's pouting, and he's saying basically, I just wish I was dead. I'm just going to lay here in the heat, and maybe the sun will bake me. And then God causes this plant to kind of grow up. This vine grows up over Jonah, and it says for a period of time there brought him comfort. It actually says in Jonah 4 that he was happy because he had this vine that grew up over him. It's the only time the word is used of Jonah that he's happy. I'm not happy that 120,000 people were just saved, right? But boy, this plant grew up over my, this vine is here. Man, I'm really, I'm really happy. And then it says that the next day God sent a worm to chew through the vine and to cause it to wither, and then Jonah's back in the depths of despair. Ah, uh, it just would be better for me to die. God does this to shame Jonah, to say you're more concerned about a dead plant than you are about 120,000 souls. It is his hatred. I believe it is that deeply embedded racism, if you want to use that word, that keeps Jonah from being able to rejoice when Nineveh repents. It's the only explanation that makes any sense to me, because he has that division of us and them in his heart. And hatred is a piece of that. I love the way that the biblical scholar Clarence Jordan puts it. He says that when we hate, what we're doing in essence is we're denying our status as children of God. And and, and the reason he can make that sort of claim is because he says, look, the Father, God in heaven, if he doesn't have hatred in his heart, if that's not part of his character, then we need to know he's not transmitting that to his children either. That's not something we genetically inherited from God. That comes from somewhere else. So hatred doesn't come from above. So if I'm like Jonah and I'm wrestling with a little something, I've got something kind of deeply tucked away in my heart. If if I'm dealing with this us and them mentality deep down inside of here and it's causing hatred to take root, then I just need to know that is not from God. That's from somewhere else. Only you know in your heart when you cross that line from, you know, civil disagreement, (laughs) argument, even sharp disagreements, right? How that moves into hatred. Jonah shows more concern for a dead plant than for the 120,000 people that God has just delivered. So, if you want to know where your Nineveh is, I would say your Nineveh is, is right there at that group of people 
that you would categorize as them. I said, my Nineveh is that, that people group that I struggle to love the most. My Nineveh is, is with the individual, is with the person that I'm starting to hate. Maybe it's the person I've hated for a long time. Somebody way back there in the rearview mirror, they did something to me years and years ago, and I just haven't quite let it go. Where is your Nineveh? I think it's probably there. Uh, this next part I want to say just really carefully, uh, because I know we're all tired of talking about politics. All right? We are. Uh, this is not about politics. What I want to talk about is the kingdom of God. That's what I'm interested in. But I can't help but think about where we've been in the last week or so. Um, in these days, I think we have a unique opportunity to speak a word, to bear witness to the kingdom of God. Uh, given the contentious nature of the election season this year, the, the, the run-up was just was, was crazy. Um, so given all that, it's really, it's really not a surprise, at least to me, that the reaction since Tuesday has been so strong. And, and let me just say up front that uh, a lot of what I've seen on my, my computer screen and on my television, a lot of the things that, that we're seeing there, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, okay, but I, a lot of it's really deplorable. That's my opinion. So when, when you have, you know, protests that turn violent, there's no place for that. When you have the destruction of property and, and people being injured, you know, law enforcement officials being put in harm's way just by doing their job because these things are getting so unruly and out of hand, you know? There's no place for that. Yes, yeah, it's just my opinion, okay? And, then, and then, then you back up, you look at some of the other stories that came out, you heard about the, you know, like college students around the campus, around the, the, the nation are so distraught. They couldn't take exams, couldn't go to class, you know? Um, I mean, I get disappointment, but Again, this is my opinion, and you can easily discard it if you want to, but I don't have a category for, like, dealing with that. I don't even know what to do with that. Um, and part of it's just my story. The day after I buried my mother, I was back in chemistry class. I that doesn't make me tough. I mean, I, just, I didn't know there was any other option. So that's just me, and you don't have to agree with that. Okay, so, like, all of that is, is kind of, like, on one side, and I imagine some of you kind of feel that and you see that. But there's another piece of, of where we are that I just want to raise your awareness to, and I think this is important or else I wouldn't spend time talking about it with you, okay? But there's a, a piece of this that I think we need to, to just sink, let it sink in and to think about the gospel implications, not the political ones. According to uh, Christianity Today and, and other news outlets that are reporting this, four out of five white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Now again, this is where everybody's blood pressure could go up really, really high. So let me just say, I'm not telling you who you should or shouldn't have voted for, okay? That's not where I'm going with this. I've been a member of this church for 15 years, and I've never said that to you, okay? So I hope that you're trusting me. I hope you're hearing what I'm actually saying, and more importantly, like, what I'm not saying right here, okay? So I'm not saying anything that is going to, like, cause you to get really upset. But, all right, uh, Four out of five, if that number's accurate, even if it's not, okay, an overwhelming majority of white evangelicals uh, pledged their support to the president-elect prior to the election. And so, so what I want to say is that there's a, a candidate there who's not been shy 
about using some language that many have considered to be racially inflammatory. And the only reason I bring it up to you is to say, what are the gospel implications for that for people who fall outside of those two categories, for non-whites and non-evangelicals, people who are asking questions now of the gospel based on Tuesday's results? I think that's an important question for us to think through. I don't have easy answers on that, okay? But I think it's important that we as a church family ask those sorts of questions because I know who I'm talking to. There are probably many of us here who politically would lean that, t- that direction, and that's okay. But as I talk with, with my friends this week who fall outside of those two categories, non-whites, non-evangelicals, there's seriously some fear, you know? Some of these people just feel vulnerable. They're a little apprehensive. So what does the gospel have to say about that? And can we engage in that conversation in a way that we remember our primary identity is as followers of Jesus, and then politics shakes out wherever you choose, right? And again, these, these aren't like college students just trying to get out of taking an exam, right? These are well-adjusted adults who are asking legitimate questions about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if there's a place at the table for them. I think that's an important question for us. I hope you understand what I'm saying on that. I feel like we have an opportunity here to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in these days and to testify that no matter what happens in the kingdoms of men, that none of that can can mute the Christian virtues that we're beholden to, virtues of peace and love and, and faithfulness to God, and hope, and all of those things that we just spent time talking about a couple months ago in our core values. According to Jesus, peacemaking is a blessed vocation. And I just bring all this up to point us back to him to say this is an opportunity for us as the people of God to be about the business of, of making peace and brokering peace, the kind of peace that bears witness to the kingdom of God. And no matter where you fall in that political spectrum, I, I, hope, I hope we can all rally behind that because that's what I want us to keep at the forefront of our hearts and our minds. But I don't think we'll ever bear witness to this kind of peace if we continue to view the world through those categories of us and them. I don't think we'll ever be able to, to broker that kind of peace that the Lord wants us to broker if we have hatred in our hearts like Jonah did. I think that kind of witness only comes from marching straight into Nineveh and proclaiming the good news that our God is is compassionate and gracious, that he is slow to anger, and he is abounding in love. So, you know, I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. A couple of months ago, some friends of mine and I, we we went down to uh, to the Huntsville Islamic Center when all this conversation was just kind of at its at its peak, because frankly, I don't have a lot of Islamic friends, and I just wanted to hear how they felt about the the language that was being used, and even though I had an opportunity to talk with some of them and to 
to say, hey, we have some really significant differences on the way that we view faith and what really counts there. I said, I, I just want you to know that as a, as a Christian in this culture, I believe in the one who tells us that peacemaking is a blessed vocation. Even though I don't know exactly what all that means, I don't have all that worked out, I don't have easy answers, you know. But I just believe that that place for that moment in time, that was my Nineveh. That was where God wanted me to be on that day. I can tell you the whole story later if you want to hear it, I'm happy to share it with you, but but I'll tell you that so that you think I'm, you know, heroically of me or whatever. That whole Gary story I told you at the beginning pretty much undoes that anyway. But I tell you that to say that I went to Nineveh that day, uh, reeking of fish vomit, reeking of the racism from my past. But I went there because I felt like people who had a different skin color than me, people who came from a different land than I did, people who even worship a different God than the one I worship. They needed to know the truth about what we as the people of God stand for in days like this. So in these days, I would say to you that we need to turn away from our counterfeit gods. As Jonah said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I would say to you that in these days we need to be concerned about our witness, particularly toward those who don't look like us or think like us or sound like us. And in these days we need to bear witness that our God is gracious and compassionate, that he is slow to anger and abounding in love, both now and forevermore. And at the risk of you not liking me for telling you that, for the risk, even at the risk of you misunderstanding what I really mean, I thought that was worth saying to you today. Because I believe this is our mission, and we are the missionaries. I believe that our God is not a God of us and them. I believe that with God it is always and only us. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's stand and sing our song together. All to Jesus I